Thank you for joining us for Time in the Chapel. Each week we eagerly try to discover what God has been saying to us since time began and even further back than that. Sometimes it's right on the surface. Sometimes we have to dive a little bit deeper, but either way we do our best, lean not on our own understanding, in all our ways acknowledge Him and expect that He will direct our paths. So grab your Bible, prepare your hearts and minds, hit the pause button long enough to pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, and then join me as we open up the treasures of God's Word. Let me start by giving you a Bible fact. In Scripture, there is only about two chapters worth of instruction on creation. Only two chapters concerning the creative process of the entire universe. Sounds odd, but it's true. So odd, in fact, it must mean something, don't you think? Why do you suppose that there are only two chapters giving us details on how God made the universe? Well, the answer is simple. That's all you need to know. You've heard me say before, God will only tell us what we need to know. I very often get accused of being wordy when I write or when I speak. Those of you that are regular listeners are the unfortunate victims of that truism. Like so many other things, God and I differ in that tendency. You see, he never wastes a single word. And really, that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with you. If he doesn't need you to know it, then he won't waste his time telling it to you. You see, God has a people to save. And at present, that's what he's focusing on. God is efficient and to the point. And it's this efficiency that gives so many people anxiety. You see, we seem to feel we need to know everything. In our modern world, one of, one of the greatest points of contention between Judeo-Christianity and so-called science is creation. It's a huge battleground that stretches from the classroom to the courtroom. They say we're wrong and we get mad. We say they're wrong and they get nasty. You want my advice? Let it go. Let them think what they want. Not saying that you don't present your case. You know I do. You know on this program, we spend some time looking at the facts. Things like creation. Things like the stars. Things like how mankind's nature is presented. We talk about those things, and in many instances, it goes against what science thinks. You've heard me say many, many times that evolution is false. I'm not arguing with anyone. I may give you some facts, but I'm not going to argue. They have facts, they'll argue with me. You see, part of the problem is creation is one of those things where God decided to be efficient. The story of creation, the details of creation is what I'm talking about. When God gave us the details, when God gave us details relevant to creation, he was being efficient. He only gave us a limited amount of information, certainly not enough to conduct a debate. You know, God doesn't spend any energy on proving himself to anyone. 
God isn't interested in what scientists think of him. Therefore, neither should we be. I believe if God had decided to give us all the details on how he created the universe, there would be no debate. There couldn't be. Because we would see all God's perfect plan and not a single person would be equipped to argue. What's your point? The point is that since God gave us limited information on this particular subject and so many others, we are open to debate because we don't have all the information. And so that's why I tell you we're fools to argue about it. If we had all the information, no one would be able to say, yeah, but the simple truth is God didn't give us all the details of his creative process. And I'm just using creation as an example. I'm using creation, the subject of creation, as a bit of a contrast for a reason. God gave us limited information on every topic. Had he not there would be no room for debate. Why? Not within the scope of today's lesson, but partially because that's what he wanted to do. God is the only one in the universe that can say, because I said so. God gave us just enough information about creation to fit his purposes And listen, if we claim to love him, then that's all we should want. If God decided, I don't need to know anything else, well, then that's okay with me. John, it sounds like you're just trying to make all this up in order to make creationism sound more palatable. One time, Jesus was teaching some important lessons to his disciples. He was telling them about how things were going to go after he left, but really the subject matter isn't important to what he said next because it applies to everything. So after some time of this teaching, he came to a certain point and said to them, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. God only gives us what he needs us to know and what we can bear. That's how we can explain our limited knowledge of creation. That's why we only get about two chapters worth of details. It's either because that's all we can bear or it's all we need to know in order to do what God needs us to do. So the story of creation is only two chapters valuable to our current mission. I'm not telling you that creation is of no value. I'm not trying to tell you that creation is of lesser value than anything else. I am telling you that creation, because we only get two chapters worth of details in scripture, is of a lesser value to our mission, to what God needs us to do for him. His mission and our mission are the same currently, and that is to promote his son. There's only about two chapters worth of valuable details to the mission of spreading God's gospel, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Anything else, I guarantee you, would be of no value to that mission. Do you understand what I'm saying? 
So why do we debate it if it is of no value to us currently? If I was driving to Lake George, New York, would I need to know how to get to Toronto? I mean, the details exist, but I'm not going to Toronto. I'm going to Lake George. Therefore, just give me the information I need to get to Lake George. We don't know it all. We haven't been given all the pertinent details. God never intended you to defend him or his word. Don't be a fool and debate something that you have limited information on. Present your case, fine. Present the information that you want to, fine. If you feel that it will glorify God, do so. But don't argue. You're not equipped. Nor are you called to. He only calls on you to believe his word and to teach his word. The story of creation in Genesis is meant to simply establish that it was God who created the heavens and the earth, and then he threw in a few other minor details. And for you to get that information, it only takes about two chapters. Just how God works. He gives you the right amount of information necessary to accomplish his purposes. So one more time, God gave us two chapters on creation. By the way, today our subject is not creation. I'm just trying to make a point using a contrast. Although there are only two chapters worth of details on the story of the process of creation, there are plenty of topics in God's Word about which He gives us far more information. Just as a quick example, there are lots of false miracles referenced in the Bible. Plenty of places where God talks about false prophets, false miracles, miracles that happen to deceive the believer. There's lots of information about that. To my estimate, I did that this week. I kind of went through some resources and I found there's about eight chapters of the Bible that refer to some sort of false miracle. As you know, false miracles are detrimental to the progress of the saints. And so God decided to go into more detail about false miracles than he did on creation. The facts concerning false miracles appear to be of more value to the kingdom than the facts on the creation as evidenced by the simple volume of information present in Scripture. Now, you may or may not agree. But it appears that we can measure the value of a particular topic to God's plans by how much God speaks of it in His Word. We have creation, two chapters. We have false miracles, about eight chapters. And then there's the tabernacle. The tabernacle in the wilderness. The tabernacle in the wilderness is referenced in 50 chapters of the Bible. Five zero. 50 different chapters of the Bible worth of details about the tabernacle. He used, God used, 50 chapters to explain the building and the reason and the purpose and the application of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is our topic today. The taber, tabernacle in the wilderness is something you've heard us speak on before. I said that in the open. We're going to spend a couple of weeks talking about it, maybe more, probably just two weeks. The tabernacle in the wilderness is a topic 
that can I say I love more than you know. And I want you to love it more than you know. But it's just so immense. It's so difficult to get at. I've already said this a few times today. God's Word is so full of richness that we stumble sometimes on some of these incredible things, the tabernacle being one of them. So I very often try to sort of comfort myself by saying self, that's what I call myself, self, teach a little here, teach a little there. We're going to try to do that this time. Teach a little here, teach a little there. But that's never made it any easier because each part of the subject is intricately linked to not only another part of the subject, but so many other subjects throughout God's Word. Going down one road always leads to another. Now, by the way, that isn't the only reason that I suffer angst at the thought of sharing this stuff with you, and we've been doing it now almost 10 years. And every time I sit down to teach it, every time I sit down to write about the tabernacle, I hesitate. I get into it a little bit and I hesitate because it just looks too unbelievable. I just know that people will think I'm making it up when I teach it. It sounds like science fiction. It's just too fantastic to be true. I'm sure that people that, have, that are going to hear this for the first time are going to think I've lost it a bit. You know, I'm, I think I'm known for a, a practical teacher, somebody that approaches the subject of God in a practical way. That's the way I've been trained by others. This just doesn't fit that pattern. It sounds like fantasy. And I don't want you to think that it's fantasy. I want you to understand it's immense. It's greater than fantasy. No human being, Stanley or other, can write about a world as wonderful as the world that God has written about in His Word. And the tabernacle just happens to be a shining example. Now, the only way I know I'll be able to get through this is that if the Holy Spirit joins me and convinces me to disregard the critics, to forge ahead, I do that every time I teach this, but then the subject comes up or the question comes up, where to begin? How do you begin a perfect circle? Well, I guess that answer is the same as it always is, God's Word. Exodus 25, 1, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the, unto the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering. Of every man that giveth it willingly with his heart, ye shall take my offering. Now, in the five verses that follow, God describes exactly what the offering shall consist of. Now, we're going to skip that part for now, and we'll pick it up at verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. Verse 9, According to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. God is telling Moses that he wants a building built. But it's so much more than just a building. This isn't just going to be some nice little community room in the middle of the desert. This isn't a rec center for the Israelites to hang out in and play ping pong. This is a very special building, a 50 chapters worthy building. And Moses is told to build it exactly 
as God says. In verse 9, by the way, this is an interesting point I want to bring up. God gave Moses very exact details about the building, but he didn't give Moses every detail. There are some details that are left out. For example, we'll get to the perimeter fence probably next week. The perimeter fence had these posts that went all the way around, and through the posts there was white linen curtain. And God was very specific about what material to use for the white linen fence. But he didn't say and he, but he didn't say what material to use for the post. He told us the material for the top. He told us the material for the bottom, but not the post itself. The post top and the post bottom we're given details on, but what the posts are made of, no details. That says to me and to you, the material of the fence is important. The material of the post top is important. The material of the post bottom is important. But the material of the post itself, not important. Well, why did God create dinosaurs? Nothing in the Bible about dinosaurs. Why didn't God tell us about the dinosaurs? You don't need to know it. We don't need to know what material the post was made out of. God's giving a pattern. And the pattern is to mean something, to speak of something. That detail is not important to the story. Back to verse 9, God is saying that he has a pattern that Moses must follow. The original word that's used is often used, as you can imagine, to mean a plan or blueprints or specifications. God is giving him a pattern for the tabernacle. You would think that they would use a word that's common in construction. Well, yes, that's a word that's used in construction. And it, not just buildings, but other objects as well. By the way, this is why I can never finish these lessons, because there's always something interesting to talk about, something amazing. So you see the word pattern in verse 9 of Exodus 25. That is a translation of the Hebrew word pronounced poorly by me, tepnith. As I said, Tabneth is used by construction engineers, ancient construction engineers of Hebrew, to mean a plan or a pattern, but it also means a model. In other words, it's used in Scripture and elsewhere to mean building something. Listen to me, because this is what a model is, isn't it? A model is something that is representative of something else. He's a model citizen. That means he's the kind of citizen we want to represent. That's a model of a F-16. That's what an F-16 is supposed to look like in miniature. It's a model. It, it's not an F-16. It can't be. It looks like one. It represents one. That's what a technique is. When an architect, when Mike Brady, the architect, used to build buildings, didn't he have, remember that from the Brady Bunch? He had a little study that had those little models in it. He used a model. That's what models are for. When a, when a painter wants to paint something, he has a model. He has the fruit bowl right there. He, it's a model. That's what this word means, tevneeth, a pattern, a model, sometimes meaning building something to represent something else that already exists or has once existed or something that will exist. That's what tevneeth means, but it's a very complicated word. 
It has many shades of meaning. And Bible scholars say that the use of this very special Hebrew word here is indicative and deliberate. This verse in Exodus is saying that Moses, listen to me, is supposed to follow an example of something that already existed sometime in the past. That this object is not the first to follow this pattern. It's modeled after. That somehow, in ancient times, another one of these houses existed. That's what this word means. We're already getting into fantasy, aren't we? We're already getting into the details that seem to make, like, you're like, this blows my mind. There existed, because we, we know this because of the use of the word tebneath, there exists or existed or will exist something like this, something that this will represent or represents. The Bible is so fascinating because of these little treasures of meaning, but it's really also quite challenging. These sorts of things can they have the tendency to even trip us up because they're so intricate. They're so godlike. Human beings, when we try to think of things that God has conceived, we start to make mistakes. There are some scholars, oh, I wish this wasn't true. There are some scholars that think this word tavneeth means that this is a pattern of the Egyptian temples that existed before. Oh, my goodness. They are claiming, because this is what this word means, and some scientists, scholars are scientists, even theologians are scientists, and they make terrible mistakes. They think this word means that. It must mean that there's a pattern that exists here on earth that God is giving. So they say, well, God was giving a pattern for the temple that was modeled after the Egyptian temples. Oh, my friends, God does not copy anyone, let alone the Egyptians. I'm not throwing stones at the Egyptians, but God would not do things the way the Egyptians did them before he gave Moses that pattern. God is God, and his patterns are far, far more wonderful than any human being could ever conceive. That's why we have a hard time figuring them out. God is modeling something far higher than any Egyptian or any human being could ever come up with. You're going to see that the tabernacle is actually patterned after something, something that existed at the time, had existed before, whose existence would once again be known and exist to this day and will exist eternally. And when you see that, you're going to be amazed. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Now, as Exodus continues on this subject of the tabernacle, we see God lays out lots of details, intricate details. And remember what I always tell you, that when God lays out intricate details, it's our clue to dig deeper that there's always something deeper than the details lay out for us. We have to closely examine these details to pry out what God is taking such painstaking care to communicate. Can I pause here and say that I just love God's style? I'm sure that doesn't mean that much to God, that he's impressing John. But I do love his style. Because 
whenever God speaks, he does it in such a way that only attentive, faithful hearts can hear the whole message. Because the messages of God are not for the casual learner. You can't be distracted spiritually and hear God's voice. If your focus is inward toward self, if you want to acquire the knowledge of the Bible to serve yourself, and lots and lots of people do that, if you're seeking after the things of God or anything for that matter, rather than for his purposes, for your own purposes, rather than for his purposes, his details will be meaningless meaningless and foolish to you. That happens to be the case for the tabernacle. It will just seem like some dusty old building that happened to be patterned after an Egyptian temple. You may work hard at it, but if you aren't intending to find God's meaning in it, for God's purposes, you're going to miss the point. Because that's the way he communicates to us. He communicates to us in a way that touches the side of us that loves him. We'll accept the right details when we love him. If we don't love him, we'll reject them. If we're more worried about looking foolish than we are discovering the things of God, then we'll reject these sorts of things. That's the way God communicates to us. If your focus is on yourself, or frankly anything other than Him, then you won't be able to see the tabneeth the pattern, the model that God is so interested in showing you. And listen, if you're, if you're one of those self-centered persons, or actually, as I said, anything else centered persons, you might as well find something else to do because, my friend, you are going to be bored for the next two weeks. Those of you that are still with me, let's move on. Hopefully by the end of this series, you're going to see something rather shocking. You're going to see the power of God. You're going to see the depth of his love. You're going to see that God is in complete control and that he's been trying to tell you something since before you were born. In the tabernacle, God is going to reveal a model, a pattern. Way back in Exodus, God is laying out in wood and cloth and metal the plan that he has for his children. I told you this was going to sound weird, but let's keep moving. So let's begin. This week, we're going to spend some time just laying out the facts. And the way we're going to start that is by briefly describing the tabernacle and its various components. Now, I know you're going to say, briefly, too late, but hang with me. Now, but before we go, I always, before we do this, before we move on, I always want to make sure that you understand we are talking about the tabernacle and not the temple. The tabernacle was the mobile moving dwelling place of God. It moved with the, the Israelites as they were wandering through the desert. That's the tabernacle. That's why it's called the tabernacle in the wilderness. The temple was conceived by David and built by Solomon. That was the permanent version. When David looked out the window and saw that the Ark of the Covenant was sitting there in the rain, he decided that God needed a house, a permanent house. And right then and there, he he conceived of the temple. He planned the whole thing. He gathered all the details. And then after he died, his son Solomon built the temple. That's the temple. We're not talking about the temple. We're talking about the tabernacle in the wilderness. Is that clear? So we're talking about the tabernacle. Now, the temple 
one more detail. The temple was modeled after, there's that word again, modeled after the tabernacle, not in exact detail, especially the second temple built by Herod. But the temple was intended to look like the tabernacle, just a permanent, far more ornately decorated version of the tabernacle. We are talking about the tabernacle this week and next week. So, the tabernacle, it was really more of a building complex, and it was laid out rectangularly. And as I said earlier, it was surrounded by a white linen fence. And all of these details mean something. We'll get into the details next week and beyond. We're just going over the actual facts. So it was rectangular. It had a outer perimeter of white linen fence. It was oriented east to west. And again, all of this is important. It was oriented east to west and all the tribes of Israel pitched their tents surrounding it in very specific locations. God told these tribes, you're going to pitch your tents here. These tribes, you're going to pitch your tents there, etc. Each of the tribes and the Levites located their camps according to God's commandments. Now, there was an entrance to the interior of the complex on the eastern side of the building. And across that entrance, serving as a type of door, was a large, multicolored, four colors to be exact, four colored curtain. And as you pass through that curtain, you find yourself in the area referred to as the outer court. Now, just as you pass through the curtain and you enter into the outer court, the first object you come to is a large altar made of brass, and it was situated very close to the entrance of the tabernacle complex, that four-colored curtain. There was a large altar made of brass. It was called the brazen altar, brazen meaning brass, made of brass. So this brazen altar was where the various sacrifices of the people were offered and burned. Of course, as I said, we'll go into the details of each of these elements in next lesson and beyond. So don't worry if you think we're going too fast, because we actually are going too fast if we wanted to give all of the intricate meanings of these details. But continuing on now to the west, we entered in on the eastern side of the complex. We came to the brazen altar as we started moving westward toward the opposite end. We're now past the altar, the brazen altar, and we're continuing to move westward. The next object we come to is a large basin-like structure. You know what I mean by a basin, a bowl, a large bowl. And like the altar... This basin is made of brass. And the laver, as it's called, is a brass object filled with water. And it was used by the priests for their ritual cleansing. Each of the priests, before they could begin to attend to their duties, must wash their hands and their feet. That's what the laver is for. It is for washing. So you have the entrance, you have the brazen altar, you have the laver going from east to west. So as now we continue past the laver, going westward, we come to an inner building, a building that is situated within the larger complex. On the eastern side of this inner building, actually sometimes referred to as the tabernacle or the tabernacle proper, this, this inner building, it's actually two rooms. When you enter in the eastern side of the tabernacle proper, the first of two rooms, you'll notice before you enter, there is a curtain that looks very much like the curtain that serves as the entrance to the outer court. It is a multicolor, four-color curtain. As you pass through the curtain, 
you enter into the first of the two rooms. This first room is called the holy place. The holy place, as you look around, has four objects or pieces of furniture, as some people call them. As you part the curtain, you see on your left a seven-branched candle stand or lamp stand made of gold. It must have been beautiful. On your right, you would see a very simple little structure designed to be very simple, yet beautiful, called the table of showbread. The table of showbread was made of shittim wood or acacia wood. We'll get into that next time overlaid with gold. And on the table of showbread were 12 loaves of, you guessed it, bread. Now there is, as I said, there's the seven-branched candle stand on your left. There is a table of showbread made of acacia wood overlaid with gold on your right. On top of the table of showbread are 12 loaves of bread. You're still faced to the west. So in front of you, you will notice another object, another piece of furniture. It's called the altar of incense. And like the table of showbread, the altar of incense is made of acacia wood overlaid with gold. And on this altar, you would see and smell a very, very specific incense burning in the morning and at twilight. So if you're there in the morning and at the twilight, you will see this very specific, you will smell this very specific incense burning. So continuing westward past the altar of incense, right behind the altar of incense, you would come to another very beautiful curtain that's serving as the entrance to the next room. But the only way that you can actually pass through this curtain is by the side. So there is no separation in the middle. You would have to go all the way around to the side in order to enter the next room. That has meaning in itself. We won't touch it now. Now this curtain, the one that is behind the altar of incense, was very specific and beautiful. It was one very thick, continuous curtain, as I said, with no part in the middle, like you would see in a stage curtain. It's not built like a stage curtain. Now, behind that curtain, behind that entrance, because that's what that curtain is serving as, this is all very important for you to understand. Everything we're talking about is scriptural and has meaning. Now, behind that curtain is a room called the Holy of Holies, or sometimes called the Most Holy Place, or the Holiest of All. And only the high priest was allowed to enter into that room. Prior to that, all of the other priests were allowed to go in and out of these different places, were allowed to attend to these different spots, but only the high priest was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies past that large, beautiful, thick curtain. And he could only do that once a year on the Day of Atonement. Now, inside the Holy of Holies were two objects. So facing the curtain, but on the opposite side, the very far side, the western side, was the Ark of the Covenant. You've heard of the Ark of the Covenant, if nothing else, because you like Indiana Jones. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant, over the top of it, was a piece of furniture that the King James Bible refers to as the mercy seat, a very interesting word, invented, by the way, by William Tyndale. One of these days we'll talk about that. So those two objects, the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, the covering over the top, were the two objects that were in the Holy of Holies. That's the entirety of the tabernacle. That's everything that is contained in the tabernacle. Very simple, yet intricately detailed, functional and beautiful structure that was built with a purposeful pattern in mind. So we now come to a 
very elemental question. Why did God have this building built? Well, the answer you will find has many layers. And we'll do our best to cover as much of it as we can. At some point, I will fail. I will not be able to tell you everything. That's when you and the Holy Spirit must get together and fill in the gaps. Let's give it a shot. When God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he had decided to bring in a new era of his dealings with his people. For the previous 400 years, the Israelites had been exposed exclusively, nearly exclusively, to the multiple deity idol worship of their slave masters. So immediately upon their liberation, God's chosen people had to be reintroduced to the correct method and objects of worship. It was important to waste no time there. Not to be sure, it wasn't going to be an easy task, and we know that. That became glaringly obvious when, not long after their escape, the Bible tells us that while Moses was away up on that mountain receiving the law from God, the people began worshiping an idol. Of course you know the story. Though only a short while before, the people were praising and honoring their Redeemer God. Remember the song of Moses? We taught on that before. That was what they were singing before this. It was a great song of worship. It was a great song of praise to the one God. Well, only a short while later, they started worshiping a calf made of gold, much like their previous owners did. It was a sign that their corruption had run deep. It was a sign that those people needed to be introduced quickly to the proper method, purpose, and object of worship. And that was one of the reasons God immediately commissioned the tabernacle. They needed a place where they could truly worship properly because worship was an integral part of the lives of the children of Israel, just like it is for us. The children of Israel needed a place that they could focus on as the presence of God in their worship. And that's what the tabernacle was meant to be. That's one. That's one of the reasons that God had the tabernacle built. This other reason, the one we're going to cover now, is related. And we read it earlier. Verse 8 of Exodus 25 stated that God wanted the tabernacle built so that he could dwell with the people. Now, that's an amazing revelation to you and I who are used to the presence of the Holy Spirit, to you and I who are used to praying to God, to you and I who know that when two or more are gathered, Jesus is in the midst. This isn't as amazing as it was to those Israelites. See, we, we sort of take our posture as Christians for granted. Even if you're not all that practicing of a Christian, you know that God is present. You know that Jesus is present. You know that you can stop and pray at any moment and the Holy Spirit will fill your heart. You may not do that very often, but you know you can. You should do it more often, but reality is what it is. Well, to the Israelites, the thought that God was going to dwell with them was amazing. Absolutely unheard of. Even though at one time God had actually walked with Adam in the garden, but since then he was unapproachable by all, except for a very select few. They had heard the stories of God's visitations to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. They'd heard about those things, but they thought that was never for me. I'm just a lowly shepherd. I'm just a metal worker. I'm just a cook. 
God will never dwell with me. And then Moses says, we're building a building so God could dwell with us. What an amazing revelation. Now, it's not that God hadn't been on the earth, as I said. Surely he had, but to dwell here? The tabernacle would be a place where God could come, where God's presence would be, and where the people could come and see him and worship him and witness to him. God was introducing a new way by which he would relate to his people, for in it, he himself was physically present. I'm hoping that your hearts are opening to see what God is doing. What he's representing with this tabernacle. I'm hoping that you're starting to see this pattern. Well, if you haven't figured it out, I'm going to tell you. The model is Christ. The tabernacle models Christ. The place of proper worship. The place where God's presence is. Colossians 2.9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He's speaking of Christ. Paul is talking of Christ. The Greek word that Paul used, that's translated into the old English word dwelleth, is katekeo, katoikeo. And katoikeo means house permanently. For in him is housed permanently the fullness of the Godhead bodily, just like the tabernacle was commissioned as a place where God would dwell. Why would God do that? Because he wanted you to see that that's what his son was going to be for all. Let's keep moving. So what else was the tabernacle for? Well, it wasn't going to be just some passive existence, this tabernacle. God wasn't just going to dwell there passively. It wasn't some sort of timeshare that God could use to kick back and relax when he needed to get away, God had a reason, as he always does, to dwell in the tabernacle. Exodus 29, 43, And there I will meet with the children of Israel, and the tabernacle shall be sanctified by my glory. God was not only going to dwell with them, but he was going to meet them there. It wasn't going to just be someone they could look over the fence. Oh, there's God. He was going to meet them there. It was going to be a place of meeting. This must have overwhelmed the people. You're saying that God's going to meet with us? He'd never met with us before. Sure, in the past, we knew he was there because he commanded or chastised or blessed, but he never met with us. God was going to use his tabernacle to meet with the people and through it reveal himself to them. Again, this is Christ, is it not? Christ is fulfilling the role of the tabernacle perfectly. John 1.14, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten the Father, full of grace and truth. Again, that word dwelt. But it's a different Greek word than the katekeo. This word is skenoo. Skenoo means, get this, tent. Christ is described as the tent where God lives. Isn't that amazing? It's the tent of meeting. That's precisely what the tabernacle was. We have to keep moving. Another purpose for the tabernacle was as a place of witness. That's what the book of Numbers called it. The tabernacle of witness. The tabernacle 
served as a place of witness, a tabernacle of witness, a place where not only the Israelites, but everyone could witness to the presence of God, not just the Israelites. Can you imagine? All who even simply came near the tabernacle could see God's glory when they gazed upon it. That's the truth. Sounds like fantasy. But if anyone came within miles of wherever the Israelites were encamped, they would be able to see something so glorious that it could only be God. You see, in ancient days, people believed in God and gods. They believed in the supernatural. They didn't try to come up with a scientific explanation. When they saw something glorious and unexplainable, they attributed it to God. When people came onto the encampment of the Israelites, they saw something glorious and unbelievable. Even the strangers would say, truly God is there. What are you talking about, John? Well, we're told that as soon as the tabernacle was finished, as soon as that building was complete, as soon as that last tent peg and cord were installed, Exodus 40, verse 34, then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. As soon as that tabernacle was complete, as soon as that pattern was complete, the presence of God came on that tabernacle like a cloud an actual cloud. Now, in the desert, there are not a lot of clouds. And have one hanging in a single spot among a group of people, large group, but still. It was amazing. People that saw that cloud said, that must be God. It was a place of witness. God had promised he was going to dwell among the people in his tabernacle, and immediately upon its completion, the people saw God's faithfulness. This cloud appeared. They were able to witness the faithfulness of God. And it was a very precious sight, because in it was God, and that cloud remained a vital link between God and the people throughout the entire period of their journey through the wilderness. I wish that more Jews talked about that. They'll tell us about their suffering and their wandering through the desert. I want to know about that cloud. Sure, you were suffering. Sure, you were wandering, but God was there with you the whole time. How could you forget that wonder? Exodus 40, 36. And when the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the children of Israel went onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud were not taken up, then they journeyed not not till the day that it was taken up. In other words, if the cloud was stationary, the people stayed. But if the cloud went up and moved somewhere, then everybody in the entire encampment, probably more than two million people, would pack up their stuff, pack up the tabernacle, in a very specific way, by the way, and move everything to where the cloud was going. And when the cloud stopped, then they put everything down and built things back up and stayed there until the cloud moved again. The cloud was a guide for the people. It let them know when they were to move and when were the, when they were to stay. Why did they move and why did they stay? Don't know. Only God knows. But there's more. This is amazing. This is why it was a place of witness. Not only did God use that cloud to guide the people, but it served as a shelter. Because remember, I said that there are very few clouds in the desert. And that sun would bake anything underneath it. Well, imagine. The presence of God in the form of a cloud was sheltering the people. I want to hear about that. You survived for 40 years in a desert because a cloud was sheltering you. Don't forget that. I know it sounds weird to tell people, hey, we were protected by the shelter of the cloud of God. But it's true. 
Listen, don't let anyone fool you. God is interested in the comfort and security of his people, and that includes you. And as further proof, we're told that at night, the cloud was replaced with the pillar of fire. And it too, and that was the presence of God. And it too served to protect the people. Can you imagine? Any wild beast or any marauding enemy who would be bold enough or desperate enough to, to approach a camp that was forever lit with a column of fire, they knew it was God. They witnessed the presence of God and they didn't mess with those people. They were not attacked. The wilderness is a very scary place, but not when there's a pillar of fire hanging over you at night. And not only that, one of the, if you've never been in the desert, you'll notice that during the day, very hot. But at night, very cold. It gets very cold in the desert. You can freeze to death in the desert, especially the high deserts. Well, that's what the column of fire was doing. It was not only protecting by keeping away enemies, but it was warming the people. God was taking care of them so tenderly. He was showing himself as a protecting comforting, loving, dwelling God. They were witnessing that. The tabernacle was a place of witness. When people saw the tabernacle, they were witnessing God. John 14, 9, Jesus describes himself. He says, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Jesus is a place of witness. When we see Jesus, we see the Father. In the King James, John 8, 1.18, we read that Jesus declared God. John said Jesus declared God. The original Greek word is literally translated lead out. Dr. Gene Scott used to say that we can think of this as someone bringing something from behind a curtain and showing it to everyone. That's what Jesus was. Jesus took the qualities of God, put into a human body, and put it on display for all to see. If you want to know what God is like, read the gospel. Jesus is a place of witness just like the tabernacle. Jesus was a place of witness to the presence of God. When you went to Jesus, you were witnessing God. As you dig deep and begin to study these 50 chapters worth of details on this amazing structure, you, you kind of get the sense that there's more to the pattern that God gave Moses than just some ordinary blueprint for some ordinary building. Now, we've only gone over a few details so far, but I'm certain it's becoming obvious what the true purpose of this building was, of this model, what this plan was supposed to be. You know, when it existed in the desert thousands of years ago, the tabernacle just wasn't some static building, wasn't some memorial or statue that people walked around. This was an active place. It was a place alive with activity. And we're going to go over some of those activities. But I want you to realize that the tabernacle was at the very center of the Jewish worship for hundreds of years. And I'm convinced that those that were involved in, act, in those activities, those that tended to the daily duties and rituals that, that went on there, all those activities, they must have had a sense there was something more to this. Perhaps they felt that what they were a part of was a pointer of some sort, something magnificent. Maybe they talked over, God gave this tabneeth. It's a, it's a model. What's a model for? We do so many wonderful things here. 
We see the presence of God in the cloud and it must be something, must be something bigger. The ultimate purpose, the ultimate pattern, the model, the plan for the existence of the tabernacle was to teach the world about Christ and his church. As hard as that is to believe, God intended the tabernacle to paint a picture of the work of the Redeemer. It is the most startling, most incredible portion of Scripture imaginable. It is amazing what God has done in this. It was designed by God to give a glimpse into what his anointed one, his Christ, was going to do. The tabernacle was designed by God to give a glimpse into what Christ would mean, not only for those way back there in the desert looking ahead, but to us looking back. Christ we find was the perfect tabernacle and he fulfilled it all, all it stood for and typified. And it's my hope and my prayer that what we teach over the series will show that to you. Make sure you join us next week as we continue this wonderful, amazing series. You've been listening to Time in the Chapel, a weekly program dedicated to bringing you in-depth biblical study. Join us again next time as we search scripture to learn more about God in your life and you in his plan. Time in the Chapel is a service of Chapel Ministries. Chapel Ministries is a non-denominational ministry with a mission to feed hungry souls. Please consider supporting this program financially. For more information, please visit our website at www.timeinthechapel.com or email us at info at timeinthechapel.com. Be sure to look for us on Facebook by searching for Chapel Ministries. Click follow to get all of the latest information.